Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to take the opportunity to say welcome to you all. My name is Professor Hilary Jagas. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As we know, it's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, land that was never sold and never ceded. This evening, as we come together to think newly about populist authoritarianism as a concept, we pause to acknowledge histories of Indigenous governments and pay respect to those knowledges embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. So welcome to the University of Sydney and this double-headed event with Professor John King and Professor Tim Norris. As you can see, the event is called The Rise of Authoritarianism. It's co-curated by Sydney Ideas the Sydney Democracy Network and the Electoral Integrity Project. You might have a suspicion that a dean who would stand between a crowd such as yourselves and two world leading scholars of democracy might have a bit of authoritarianism about you. <laughs> but tonight I'd be a closer to populism and my plan only to explain the format of the event, introduce the speakers and clear the floor in anticipation of the excellent evening. The running order tonight will be that Tim and Norris will speak first, John King will speak second. Graham Gill, who is actually the chair and MC of the event, will then offer his own commentary and ask questions of the two speakers, after which he will curate some questions from the floor for John and Pippa. So all that remains for me really to do is to introduce our three speakers, which is a great pleasure. There's been a lot of talk recently about the rise of populism and authoritarianism, about the waning of liberal democracy, and about whether we are witnessing a new phenomenon or something that has historical precedent. Luckily, to cut through the popular static, we have not only two thought leaders to hand, but two thought leaders who have recently published separate books on this matter. Pippa Norris known to many of you, I'm sure, is a comparative political scientist who has taught at Harvard for more than a quarter century. She is ARC Laureate Fellow and Professor of Government and International Relations at this university. She's also the Paul F. McGuire Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the John F. Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University, and Director of the Electoral Integrity Project. Her research compares public opinion and elections political institutions and cultures, gender politics, and political communications in many countries worldwide. This year, she publishes her new book, Cultural Backlash, The Rise of Populist Authoritarianism from Cambridge University Press. John Keane is Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney and at the WZB Berlin, and Distinguished Professor at Peking University and Director of the Sydney Democracy Network. He's renowned for his innovative thinking about democracy and is the author of a full-scale history of democracy, something that sounds easier, I suspect, than it is. The Life and Death of Democracy, published in 2009 with Simon Schuster, and his best-selling Violence in Democracy and Democracy and Media Decadence, 
both from Cambridge University Press, Kawaga Mwanatu. He's currently completing a new book on the global spread of despotism. And tonight, he will also discuss his new book, published last year, When Trees Fall, Monkeys Scatter, Rethinking Democracy in China. Finally, our chair for the evening, Graham Gill, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Government and International Relations. He's President of the International Council for Central and East European Studies and has been an ARC Australian Professorial Fellow and a member of the ARC College of Experts. His main research interests lie in Russian and Soviet politics, but he's also published books on various aspects of democratisation and on the origins and development of the state. He received an ARC Discovery Grant to investigate elite politics and authoritarian political systems, with a particular focus on the relationship between the dominant leader and other members of the ruling elite. He's held visiting positions in Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Washington, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Florence. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in very good hands tonight. I entrust us to print us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back and to be here with so many colleagues. All you need to do is say the word Trump. Everybody springs to attention. Everybody has an opinion. And then, of course, you have to add Brexit, and that's the other buzzword which everybody is obsessed with in Britain and in many other places. And then we add in the French with Le Pen. You add in AFD and the Germans. You add in the Five Star Movement in Italy and even One Nation in Australia. And you've got a phenomenon that everybody is fascinated by. What I've got today is a book which is coming out in uh, the fall, that's to say in probably in October, with Ron Inglehart, my colleague at the University of Michigan. And I'm going to tell you this just between ourselves, it was a very, very difficult book to write. I've, I've actually written a lot of books now, and this was, I think, the most difficult of all. Because I'm personally involved, you cannot get engaged in this topic without getting angry and annoyed, without waking up at four in the morning and suddenly worrying about what, whether we're going to be having nuclear war or not. And I wanted to basically use that passion to inform the scholarship, but also to look afresh at some of the ways that we're thinking about this and what's going on. And the result is the book Cultural Backlash. Now, what we're going to do is first just talk about the concepts. And this is important because populism is everywhere, but what is it? And there are endless debates. I'm going to define it in terms of two core aspects, which I think work in every country. And then authoritarianism, why is that added? So I'll explain what we mean and give you our theory, our argument, our core framework about what we think is really going on, which differs from a lot of the headlines you might have been reading. Then I'll give you a little bit of the evidence, thinking about parties, how do European parties vary in how far they are part of this phenomena, and how do we classify them? For example, is Jeremy Corbyn a populist? Can we see that the similarities uh, between Syriza in Greece and, say, the Golden Dawn in Greece? What's the differences and the similarities across parties in Central and Eastern Europe and in Western Europe or in Scandinavia and the Mediterranean? I'll give you just a little hint about our evidence, just a bit. It's an enormous book. I couldn't stop writing it. It just went on, and I could have gone on for much longer. Uh, but I'll give you a little uh, soupçon, and Graham will stop me if I go on for too long. Um, and a little bit of the American evidence, but not a lot. So this is kind of a taster, a bit of an advert, if you don't mind my calling it that. 
for the book when it comes out. This is what the book looks like. So it really starts by thinking about the nature of what is populism and how we can think about that, what arguments might work, varieties of populism, because it's not all one type by any means. Think about in America, we talk, we talk about people like Bernie Sanders being populist, and we talk about Trump being populist. What on earth do they have in common? And then we'll think about values. And the core argument is going to be that there are cultural values which are really deep-seated, which are what's driving this phenomena, and a cultural backlash amongst those who are traditionalists who feel threatened by some of the major developments which have been going on now for decades, but which, which have reached a tipping point. And the rest is basically expanding upon this, looking at particular aspects. Is it, for example, economic grievances? Is it immigration? How do votes translate into seats? Why is it that, for example, Australia seems to be an exception compared with many other countries around the world? And the conclusions, does it matter? So let's just think about this. These are the sort of parties we are familiar with. And uh, about a decade ago, I wrote another book, which I termed Radical Right. I've since abandoned that concept. I don't think it helps. I don't think it actually helps to understand these parties in left or right terms at all. But we know that there are parties, the French National Front, for example, doing really well in the presidential elections, not winning, but coming second, defeating the mainstream socialists, defeating the Republicans. We know in Switzerland, we have a party which is in power and has been in the executive. In Austria, the Freedom Party again had an election when they did very well and now in coalition government. And we can see in Sweden, as well as in Norway, as well as in Denmark and Finland, these parties have done well. And in Greece, slightly different party in all sorts of ways, but nevertheless coming to power after the economic crisis. And in Italy, we've just had the election. And of course, in the Netherlands as well, with Geert Wilder. So what's the actual picture? This kind of gives you a snapshot. This shows you what's happening with all of these parties across 32 different countries, which are established Western democracies and new democracies as well. And we can see the share of the vote on average by decades. So immediately after the war in the 1940s and 50s, these parties existed. Think in Britain about the British National Party, a very racist, very small party, never got through the, the threshold. And we can see that in many other countries they were there, kind of trickling along, not qualifying for seats probably, and certainly not qualifying for government. What changed? In the 1980s, that's when they suddenly basically almost doubled their share of the vote. And that's no accident, we think. That timing is important. And it's not just a phenomenon which is happening now. And it's not just a phenomenon which is happening uh, in Trump. It's a much bigger fa factor that's going on. And you can see that they continue and have been expanding in their share of the vote. But of course, this also varies from one country to another. So a decisive shift forward. They double their share of the vote over the years here. And then if we look at what's happening across different countries, this gives you the average picture, the share of the vote across Europe. And again, think about the explanations for what's going on. We often talk, for example, about social inequality, economic inequality, lack of jobs, lack of, uh, lack of welfare. Well, some of the countries with the best comprehensive welfare states, with the most egalitarian societies, Sweden and Norway, has a very strong progress party, has a very strong party within this category. And we can see that they're there in the Mediterranean as well. We can see that they're there in France. They're there in Anglo-American democracies. And they're there in countries which are from a, more, from a communist past and post-state. So simple explanations 
based on stereotypes in particular countries don't work. Now, let's just say, what's the definition? So here's the two features. What is populism? Two things about it which are critical. Number one, it's basically critical of the established people in power. So it can be corporate elites. It can be the media, fake media. It can be judges, partisan judges as they're called. Uh, it can be elected politicians. It can be establishment parties, especially social democratic parties or Christian democratic parties, as well as other people like uh, bureaucrats, red tape, uh, the hidden state. And of course, I hate to say it, probably more or less everybody in this room, uh, if you see yourself as an academic and a scholar and a professor or a, a, somebody who's an intellectual, I'm afraid you're all part of those which have been delegitimized. And what the claim is, I know it's, it's uh, somewhat worrying, especially when we have, by the way, that introduction, because we were the most global you know, bio that you could have, right? People who are comfortable in many, many cultures and teaching in many places. So we're basically the enemy, meaning that populists criticize our legitimacy, our authority. Remember the Brexit phrase, who needs experts? Right, well that's all of us, who needs experts? Who needs economists when you can get somebody on television that Trump can appoint as his economic advisor? Who needs scientists about climate change when he knows it doesn't exist? Who needs experts in general? They get it wrong. You give me one expert, I'll give you another. And of course, who even needs experts in the State Department right now who could deal with negotiations when Trump is the man. So it delegitimizes all the established institutions and the checks and balances on the executive. But the second feature of populism is it also says vox populi. That's the claim, that's the rhetoric. It's a form of speech. Vox populi means power should be with the people. And again, who could be against that? The idea that we should have deeper democracies, that we should participate, that we should have opportunities beyond elections, we should have referenda, plebiscites, deliberative democracy, all of that sounds, in many ways, positive. The problem is that there are very few mechanisms which allow the nation state to be governed by the people. We know that. We've known that ever since the Greeks. So what happens? You're opening the door through populism to authoritarian strongman leaders. Your politicians are not going to protect you. Your politicians are corrupt. Your politicians are not going to represent you, the claim is made. So we need a strongman and it is often a man to protect us. So that's when, and I'm sorry about the font that suddenly merged together for some weird reason, um, there are three aspects of authoritarianism. And here the idea is that we're talking about the culture, the values, the things that you think are important in your life, the things which people who vote for Trump, who vote for Le Pen, who vote for the AFD in Germany, think are the critical things. Number one, security. So the idea is that we're under threat. We're under threat from the cultural elites, Hollywood values, people in DC and New York who think they know what's best for the people in the middle of the country, people who are out of touch, who are going to take away our guns, who are going to take away our church, who are going to take away our identities. And the idea is in particular that the strongman leader, whether it's a Putin or a Trump or a Duterte in the Philippines, is going to basically give you, your group, your tribe, protection. Secondly, conventionalism, meaning that this worldview basically says we need to go with tradition. That things like marriage are important and church is important and patriotism is important. They shouldn't be thrown out. They should be preserved. And people who don't go along with that are morally corrupt. That their values are things that those who adhere to this reject. And that means, of course, that there's enemies 
whether it's Islamophobia or homophobia or misogyny, the, the label of who the enemy is, who's the outgroup, varies from one country to another, from one place to another, but they're all seen as problematic, and anti-Semitism is now raising its head as well, very badly in Europe as well as in America. And lastly, if you're insecure and you want to protect your culture, then you need the strong man who's going to stand up, somebody who's transgressive, somebody who's going to say what I can't say, somebody who is not politically correct, somebody who's going to go with my values and speak on my behalf and protect the tribe, my tribe, not your tribe. So you polarize, and the strongman leader comes in implicitly through this process, talking the talk of populism, but in practice, exercising power in ways which are really damaging for liberal democracy, pluralism, social tolerance, and a wide range of other things that we think are critical, and which I always think, thought were at the heart of the American culture. Now, the danger then, and it's the danger which does wake me up at four in the morning, is that the strong man unlocks the door. The populist says, I'm doing this on, behavior, on, on behalf of, of democracy, right? I'm not having a coup d'etat. I'm not basically over, overturning the constitution. I am protecting you on your behalf. And where that's plausible, and when the other politicians are seen as delegitimized, then you get this phenomenon. And it's not simply that every single authoritarian is a populist or that all populists are authoritarian, but the combination, the two things together are what's dangerous. Now, I'll give you my explanation as well. Um, this is a little bit more complicated and I know we don't have a tremendous amount of time. Okay, so this is, if you don't want to buy the book, and you probably shouldn't, uh, <laughs> 275 pages, it's all on one graph. I love a graph which can kind of just um, say everything in one page. Okay, so we start off with structural change. By that we mean, we're going back to Sociology 101 and the basic trends which have been occurring in every affluent country around the world. And we're talking about things like the growth of education. College education and the number of people who've gone to it has incredibly expanded, particularly for women, but for all groups as well. We're talking about generational change. As the millennials come in and the Gen X come in, and over time they replace uh, the older, more traditional interwar generations. I'm not simply looking at our older colleagues as I say that, though I might get distracted. Gender differences, we know, the transformation in women's lives and the concept of gender. So forms of, for example, uh, uh, gay rights and ideas about uh, sexuality of choice are very much on the uh, mainstream culture now. Changes in social diversity, which isn't just race by any means, that's how Americans see it, but it's much, much broader than that, although that's part of it. And then urbanization, a little hidden known area that we hardly ever focus on in sociology that's really important. So these things change. As a result, we argue, we're having changes in first the silent revolution. Now the silent revolution goes right back to Inglehart's work, it's very famous, from 1977. And he predicted, he looked around in Tokyo, in New York, and in Berlin, he said the young people have really got a different set of values. They're much more post-materialist was the frame that he used. And I basically call them more socially liberal. So whether it's attitudes of, for example, cosmopolitanism, the idea that you want open borders to live and work in different places, or whether it's ideas of sexual tolerance of minorities and welcoming diversity, or whether it's ideas of uh, civil liberties and freedoms, the social changes in the culture were in the 1960s and the 1970s were immense. We all know that. A lot of us lived through it. Some of you didn't, but some did. Well, 
In a sense, the silent revolution was very seminal for its time. But of course, where are we now? What's happened? And what we're arguing in the book, and this is critical, is that there's a tipping point. Many, many people, the older generation, the less educated, those living in rural areas, they don't go along with this. And they were the majority, particularly white men in America, in the middle, middle states, Wisconsin, Michigan, also working class groups in the north of England. Also groups in France, for example, living in uh, the areas around Lyon or Paris. So society has been changed around them. The values have been changed around them. And over time, a tipping point means that social liberalism has expanded. Those basic values through generational change have taken off. But of course, that group that was the majority, the traditional cultures, have become the new minorities. They've lost their predominant status and power and respect. And for them, it's rather like the whole country has been taken away from them. And so the things which they value, patriotism, church in America, masculinity, a wide range of different traditional values like marriage, nobody seems to respect anymore. And the problem at the tipping point is that it's become not just a linear trend, but a fundamental change when they know that they're the minority. They might not be the minority in their own community, but they know that they've become the minority across Britain, across America, across France and Germany. In other words, they're the ones who are the losers from the cultural change. And they react. And particularly if you hold that you want to have traditional values, those are the moral standards, and that you're loyal to your tribe, your group, and that your values are under threat, that's what triggers what we term the authoritarian reflex. That's when people go to the strong leader who's willing to stand up for you and say, the things that you believe are the things I believe. The things which you're standing for are the things I stand for. Now, all of that is reinforced by sudden changes in immigration. When Angela Merkel opened the border in 2015, and suddenly the Balkans had thousands of refugees, suddenly Greece, suddenly Italy, had thousands of refugees coming onto their shore or through the land route, that was a threat to traditional Europeans. And of course, economic grievances. The 2007 housing crisis, which turned into a financial crash, which turned into a Eurozone crisis, such that youth unemployment, for example, in Spain and in Greece is still around one in two young people. That reinforced these values. But it wasn't the cause. It wasn't the cause, we argue, because it's the long-term changes in the population and education which are driving these value changes and the reaction against them. And therefore, we disagree a lot with a lot of the economic explanations you might have heard. It's not simply unemployment. It's not simply those who are poorest who are necessarily voting for these parties. It's not those on welfare benefits. It's not necessarily those who are the lowest income. It's those who felt culturally threatened. That's the core message from the book. Now, that in turn leads to votes, but obviously it's not automatic. And again, think about attitudes towards race or immigration. You can find them in many, many countries. It doesn't necessarily propel a party forward. But when a party comes forward and a leader exemplifying those values, in particular electoral rules, for example, if there's a low electoral threshold, they gain seats, they gain credibility, they gain access to parliaments, they gain ministerial offices, they gain power. And party competition also matters. And here the example is UKIP in Britain. UKIP did really well in the 2015 election. And then, of course, there was the referendum on Brexit in 2016, when their side won. But of course, in 2017, what had happened is that Theresa May 
It said, we're the anti-European party. We're the party that will pull you out of Europe. UKIP lost its policies, lost its programme, and lost its votes and its support. And the Conservatives became uh, the populist authoritarian standard bearer in Britain. And you can see that in many, many countries. Even in liberal Germany, when Angela Merkel was threatened with new coalition, she started talking about how immigrants have to be following German customs. And that was very much the threat as the alternative for Germany had become the main opposition party in the Bundestag. So that's our kind of core explanation. I won't have time to go into the evidence. You'll have to take my word for it for the time being. <laughs> and I won't show you our parties because it's too complicated anyway, but anyway. Does it matter? So the last chapters say, potentially this could erode the civic culture. Now, in many ways, there are two arguments here, and it's kind of still playing out. We don't know what the results are going to be. On the one hand, populism in itself could mobilize groups that otherwise felt disenfranchised. Those groups who felt that Washington, that London, and that Brussels wasn't speaking for them might find a, might find a representative that they feel infused about, that they feel excited about, that they're going to wear the red hats for, as opposed to the pink hats. So in some ways, populism per se, you can argue has some benefits for democratic participation for some groups. Now, we, we might not like it, maybe we do, maybe we don't, but it's possible. On the other hand, we also think that it might well erode not just the legitimacy of elected institutions, which is fundamental, not just traditional parties, with the social democratic parties across Europe having the worst performance this last decade of any year since they were founded at the turn of the century in, two, in 1900. But it might also damage social tolerance, particularly of minorities, particularly of ethnic diversity, particularly of, of gays, particularly of women's rights. Women are really mobilized right now in America and very angry and using that anger for political purposes. So many women are standing as candidates, we've never seen that kind of phenomena before. So there's pros and cons on the civic culture as it plays itself out. It can also have an impact on the policy agenda. And here again, there are arguments. For example, should it be that the European elites and the European party leaders should have been talking about immigration long ago and not just saying that this is something which is beyond the pale? Maybe the Canadian model of immigration is one which, for example, Britain can consider. And lastly, what about liberal democracy? And again, I'm afraid it's still playing itself out. And again, this is one of the reasons it was so difficult to write the book. On the one hand, clearly everything that President Trump is doing is potentially damaging. And I don't need to tell you that. You've watched it all, you've read it all, you've seen it ad, ad, ad hoc. But the way in which he's denigrating, whether it's the independent press and the free press and journalists, whether it's the, uh, whether it's the partisan courts as he accuses them of, whether it's other groups which is perfectly happy. He seems very friendly to dictators around the world, not so much to allies like Canada which he's happy to lie to. On the other hand, democracy is often resilient. And I think that the work which is being done in America right now by journalists, that's to say by, for example, the New York Times and the Washington Post is brilliant. I think that the work of the courts has really curtailed a lot of the incompetence of the initial decisions that the administration made. I think that the work of the Democratic Party hasn't been as together as it could have been, but nevertheless, they are mounting an effective campaign the current polls suggest on the generic Congress ballot that they will retake the House of Representatives and then you could see some real opposition. And of course, the last people to mention, Mueller and the investigation. And again, we don't know where that's going, 
But the security forces, particularly the FBI and CIA, have pushed back, despite being criticized by the Justice Department. And so long as Mueller is still working on that and not sacked, then we can see how rule of law remains preserved in America, despite everything. And the incompetence of the administration is also a protection, because they're so bad and they have so few people left. You know, it's <laughs> the last person to leave the White House should really turn out the lights, almost. So the last conclusion is that liberal democracy is under serious threat, and it's worse in those countries with the hybrid regimes, like Hungary, like Turkey, like Venezuela, like the Philippines, that we're never quite there, but have really gone backwards in major ways through constitutional change and human rights, and violating and had real repressive regimes, so they've gone back to autocracy. But whether or not European countries succumb, whether or not America succumbs, we'll have to see. And that again was a difficult reason for my book. Was there a full stop or was there a kind of a question mark? And I think we're still at the question mark stage. And although it feels as though we've lived with Trump forever, uh, we'll find out um, in the next midterm elections with the Mueller investigation and then with the final election of 2020. Thanks all very much. More is on there and Q&A is always very, I'm very happy to do tell you 
about the book I'm working on, which is an attempt to develop an anatomy of um, regimes uh, of this new kind. Um, I'm looking at, and I want to say something very generally about the Central Asian republics, China, Russia, some of the Gulf states, um, a few outliers, Belarus, Hungary, possibly Poland, Vietnam, Brunei. Um, when you look into um, these regimes, which are typically called authoritarian regimes, you see that they have actually quite a few uh, structural characteristics in common. And I want to talk about those. That's the third point I want uh, to make. I want to ask, secondly, the question of what we should call these regimes. What kind of power are we talking about? And the third, I want to look Unfortunately, I um, delve into this in uh, what I know is uh, a current concern and is a book um, we have certainly talked about in, in some detail. I want to look at the, the depth dimensions of support for, for these authoritarian regimes. I mean, what kind of character types of people are attracted to populism or and or to these regimes that I'm going to describe? So very briefly, kangaroo hopping through these three points let me just say, um, to make these three points by beginning with the first, I want to sketch to you um, a picture, an ideal type picture, of the type of power that you will find in um, these regimes that um, I've mentioned. Bear in mind that these regimes are not sovereign territorial states. They are entangled with each other, and they are entangled with the so-called democratic West. Think about, um, think about Russian involvement in Syria. Bear in mind that um, the fanciest hotel in Minsk in Belarus is called the Beiti, uh, where there are 10,000 Chinese workers. Uh, think about the Idai Nu, the uh, One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, all of these um, examples suggest that, in fact, the kinds of regime type that I'm going to describe to you are entangled with one another, they come to uh, one another's support, uh, and they are also deeply entangled uh, in arms deals, in petrochemical supplies, in tourism, and in other ways with the so-called uh, West. It's also worth saying um, very quickly that there are a lot of misconceptions of, uh, about these states, and there is still a presumption that they can't last, that they will collapse. Think of John McCain's remark that Russia is simply a gas station masquerading as a state. You know, and if, and if you apply sanctions to it, and if the price of oil and gas drops, um, it can't last. Um, I think this is uh, deeply mistaken, and it's deeply mistaken because, in fact, there are signs that the type of regime that I'm going to describe now has a strong uh, durability, and I've tried to develop this uh, point uh, in the China book when these four monkeys are scattered. So what am I talking about here? I uh, think there are only two handfuls of characteristics in common of these competitor, post-democratic, authoritarian uh, regimes. So I'm not talking about the Atlantic region. I'm talking principally about the Eurasian region, because I think that is uh, the heartland of these uh, two handfuls of characteristics. First of all, those who rule in these regimes do so in the name of the people. There's a kind of managed populism. Um, everything that is done is done in the name of the sovereign people. 
they have a certain phantom democratic quality. And in this sense, um, you should feel a bit disturbed by this because they're trying to steal the language, so to say, of democracy. And they're trying to say, Putin says it regularly, practically every other press conference, we have a real democracy going on here. And that phantom democracy that is called, or that ridiculous so-called democracy called the United States doesn't uh, uh, pass muster. Um, this, uh, this type of uh, regime does not require, unlike the 20s and 30s, the fascist totalitarian movements, it does not require mass mobilizations of people. It wants just the opposite, in fact. It wants loyal people, and it tries to persuade those people that their voluntary servitude to power um, is, uh, is, uh, is beneficial to their lives. So no, uh, no visits to Becker's garden equivalents, no mass rallies, uh, instead of recommendations of the kind that I quote here from the Gulf today, uh, the newspaper of the Emirates, um, quote of the week, uh, the more you complain about your problems, the more problems you have to complain about. That's the kind of you know, tone of those who rule. So manage um, forms of, uh, of, of, of populism. Secondly, these are regimes where patron-client relations are a central organizing principle. Everybody is interconnected with everybody else from the top to the bottom. Um, in China, it's called Wanxi. Uh, in Russia, it's called Blood. Um, there's a joke in Egypt that Wasa, which more or less translates into patron-client relations. You know, in fact, mutual backscratching is the sexually transmitted disease of the Arab world. Um, these are, these are, these are, these, uh, this, this interconnectedness of peoples, their dependence in the field of economy and politics and daily life, their interconnection through uh, connections is a very basic reason for the durability of uh, these uh, systems. Everybody, so to say, is drawn into the networks of power that comprise these regimes. Third, every one of these regimes is a plutocracy. Um, there are key figures like um, uh, Igor Seti, uh, Putin's um, favorite, um, uh, favorite uh, plutocrat. Jack Ma, Alibaba's um, Jack Ma in China. Babak Zadjani in, in, in uh, Iran. The point is that these um, systems that pride themselves on being an expression of popular sovereignty, in fact, the gap between the rich and poor is very great. Um, and um, when, the, and therefore, one of the strange paradoxical features of the regime is how do they manage, how do they manage to survive without um, uh, collapsing? Fourth point. One thing that's unusual about these regimes is that they have no ruling single ideology. Um, those who rule, for example, through media, speak multiple languages, so to say. This is a polysemic uh, government. Um, Putin is a master of this. It happens in China as well. Xi uh, will speak about ancient Chinese civilization, 5,000 years old. Then he'll speak about socialism. Then he'll speak about democracy, the people's uh, democracy, and so on. This um, multilingual quality of rule is, uh, has all sorts of functional advantages. You, know, you can blow, depends which way the wind's blowing, you can speak to certain constituencies. You can appear to be all things to uh, many uh, people. Fifth, all of these uh, regimes have a middle class. 
And the middle class tends to be promiscuous. Um, it doesn't much like um, uh, power sharing constitutional democracy of the idealized, uh, uh, let's say, Atlantic kind. Um, and so long as it's not interfered with, it will be loyal to uh, the regime. It will frequent the shopping malls. It will pride itself on its family connections. It will go on holidays, and you will meet these people in Dubai, um, where these middle classes come from these regimes, and they have money to spend. And they show no signs of wanting to overthrow um, the regime. And that runs counter to quite a lot of social science research that supposedly, although Graham criticized it at least 30 years ago, uh, that supposes that you've got a middle class will always want, uh, always will want you know, free and fair elections and constitutional rule of law. That isn't the case. Sixth point: all of these regimes are what Ashish Nandi, the great uh, Indian social scientist, called sexocracies. There's a word for it. Sexocracies. Spell it correctly. They all practice elections, and they win them. We've just seen one in Russia. Now, why they do this um, is, uh, there are, there are, again, it has functional advantages for a system of top-down rule. Um, you can outwit opponents. You can shame um, minor parties. You can attract young blood uh, into the regime and so forth. But it's striking that um, elections are held uh, periodically. And all sorts of dirty tricks are used. If things go wrong, and if things really go wrong as they did in Iran, then you bring the troops onto the streets. Uh, seven, every one of these regimes um, is media saturated, and some of them, Iran, China, Russia, um, the list goes on, are actually practicing state-of-the-art mediation of power. They are regimes of censorship, but when it comes to digital network, internet, uh, relations. In fact, there is a measure of uh, openness, a willingness um, to allow, say, um, netizens to speak out um, an interest in early warning detectors. So quite a complicated uh, relationship. Um, China, I think, is a very, a very uh, clear example of this. And all of these regimes, by the way, have media industries. That's true uh, for uh, the Emirates. It's true for, um, uh, for China, uh, think about Alibaba. It is the largest online retail uh, firm on the face of uh, the earth. Eighth uh, point, all of these regimes, those who rule are aware that um, people can be fickle, that people can rebel, that they can overturn relations, uh, established relations of power. And therefore, those who rule understand that the Mao principle that political power grows from the barrel of the gun doesn't apply. What is clear is that these are police states, but they are police states in which violence is camouflaged. Um, this is uh, Novichok's story in Salisbury. This is Litvinenko. Um, usually in Russia, for example, the violence that happens against opponents of the regime is violence that's camouflaged. It's carried out by thugs dressed in leather jackets and so on. And the point is that these come for the bulk of the population. Fear and daily violence are not what they experience. And finally, these are systems of power that rule through law. There is a barely rule of law. 
but everything that is done uh, by those who govern at various levels of these systems uh, refer to law and claim to be acts of uh, lawful acts. Now, that's enough. Um, I don't, uh, just as a sort of rough description of um, what these so-called authoritarian regimes, as they are called, uh, look like in practice. And they are a serious um, alternative to uh, the kind of power-sharing, constitutional democracy that our grandparents, for example, valued and fought for. There's a sting in the tale of what I want to say, because if you think about it, um, more than a few of these policies are also found in actually existing democracies, and, and I hope, therefore, that my description disturbs you and you need to talk about it uh, uh, more. Um, I came here to disturb you. Uh, 
Um, the proliferation of terms to try to make sense of what I've just been describing is very uh, striking. Um, some say they're autocracies. That's Karadarishad's um, term for, uh, uh, for feminism. I think it's just not right. Defective democracies, delegative democracies, that's the yellow of the door, illiberal democracies by Zakaria, um, hybrid regimes, semi dictatorships, um, the polar opposites of liberal democracies, say, says uh, Frank Fukuyama. What I think is that buried in, these, in this language, um, it's not only a failure to grasp the internal complexities and their democratic qualities, may I put like that, but there is the presumption that these regimes have strayed off the path of democracy, or that they somehow they stand between um, uh, some kind of dictatorship on one hand and uh, liberal democracy on the other. I think these regimes are not going anywhere. I think they are sui generis. They stand um, as something new. And they, and I think they have a durability that ought to be scary or spooky for uh, for us. Third point, um, unfortunately, we couldn't um, raise this, but I'm going to sort of kick off this discussion about um, how to understand support for um, these regimes that I prefer to call despotisms. How do you explain the voluntary servitude uh, of millions of people to these? It's a top-down form of power. It's a plutocracy, and so on. And yet, why is it that millions of people are attracted uh, to Putin, uh, or have deep respect for Xi and the Chinese Communist Party? Well, never mind the respect for um, those um, demagogues of the Central Asian Republic, Niazo, for example, the man who ordered the shutdown of the, of the Meteorological Bureau because the Met offices kept getting a weather forecast wrong. Uh, who, who ordered um, the elimination of dogs in uh, Ashgabat, in the capital, because of their smell, and who ordered um, the abolition of car radio on the grounds that they were being used by people to have bad conversations without the great deal. How do you explain um, support for, uh, these, uh, uh, for uh, these forms of power? What's worth pointing out, and I'll try to do this in two and a half minutes and stop, is that um, our sense of history here is really important. You know, until um, about 100 years ago, if we were sitting, if we had been sitting in this theater, the presumption would have been it begins with Plato and Aristotle. Um, and there are many, many instances of it in Western political thought. The presumption was that most people tend to mindlessness and attraction to strong demagogic leaders. Um, there's a kind of uh, what Freud called hypnotism effect. The presumption was that that's how people are. That, um, uh, there are many different versions of this, like the mentioned T.S. Eliot and James Madison and the Philadelphia Constitution makers and Freud and Gustav Lebon. But that was the paradigm that, that prevailed until the early years of the 20th century. I think cries of Duce, 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 and um, the terrible violence done by such regimes um, of demagogic power actually um, has begun to force, slowly through time, a rethinking of why it is that people um, are yet attracted uh, to, or how they live within 
such regimes of top-down uh, power. And I just want to um, end with a few remarks about this. Pippa's view is that the main explanation, at least for the phenomenon of populism, authoritarian populism, that comes at, um, that, that is centered in the Atlantic region, is um, it's a cultural backlash. People are anxious, um, they feel they're skidding, they no longer feel that they belong in a country, men are not men, and all this stuff. Um, I think, actually, uh, when you look at the regimes that I'm analyzing, it's a good deal more complicated than that. There certainly um, is a type of character called the authoritarian personality. And I know that you want to revive the Adorno uh, Frankfurt School work. That's very, that's very important, I think, that uh, you do. And it's very rich and it has a lot of potential. But when I look into the regimes that I'm analyzing and trying to write about these new despotisms, I find actually um, a handful or so of different dispositions that I think you need to take into account to make sense of why it is that um, these regimes uh, tend to durability. Um, apathy. People not taking any interest at all uh, in matters of public life outside their circles of work or family life, sport, and other forms of self-celebration. Moves. Um, it's estimated that if the moonshine and official um, alcohol industry in Russia was shut down overnight, there might actually be social disturbances. I'm not joking. Consumer. Consumer shopping malls. Um, giant shopping malls. All of these regimes have big shopping malls. And these are kind of temperature control temples where people worship their money and um, they indulge through their images um, their fantasies of themselves. These are regimes that, uh, in which a lot of bellyaching takes place. Actually, these despotisms like bellyaching, people who complain endlessly and do nothing about it. Um, there are fatalists, those who think that tomorrow won't be any better than today, probably be worse, that nothing can be done. And one last um, quality, which I'm looking at at the moment and um, puzzled by, but you can find empirically signs of this in these um, despotisms, is what um, is what has been called by Tessa Pilar, um the great Polish writer, the Ketman principle. Uh, basically, in plain English, it's a type of character of people who who know that their beliefs are contradictory but who explain away to themselves their own contradictions and submit to power. Um, and you may know that Milos thought that, that fascism fed upon such uh, people. Um, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's enough, um, probably pretty depressing stuff. It's so to say, the other side of what Pippa has been talking about, I'm talking about um, a type of power which is crystallizing. Its center of gravity seems to be to be the Eurasian region. Um, it contains at least one empire, and its crystallization is happening at precisely the moment that so-called liberal democracies are in disarray and are suffering dysfunctions and the birth of authoritarian populism. What I try to do is give you a sense of what's at stake in these years of the 21st century, because you cannot understand it unless you look at the big global picture and see that on the horizon is an alternative to the
life a form of power that mimics us. It mimics us. And may I say, the sting of the tail to remind you is that these regimes have more than a few qualities that are beginning to look unmarried. Thank you very much. Comments that I want to make regarding uh, uh, on both on both pages. Um, as with the evidence from uh, Anna Marie's introduction, um, I'm basically a digital Sovietologist. Because I'm someone who spent uh, a large part of his life studying that system. And when John talks about the new kind of regime that is known characteristics. All of those characteristics are characteristics of late communist regimes. If you run through them, rules in the name of the people, that's precisely what the communist regime claims. Patron client relations, that was the basic power structure there that was evident from 1917. Plutocracy, you can read the books about the nomenclatura, as it was called, the rich, the well off officials. Clear gap between them and the uh, and the populace. No ruling single ideology. Well, there clearly was an official ideology, but towards the end of these regimes' lives, that had been that had been joined by a series of other ideologies, nationalism in particular, fascism in some place, or have a middle class. It was a different middle class. It wasn't a middle class based on the sort of things that our middle class is said to be based on, but it was nevertheless seen as a middle class, as an official middle class. Um, elections, huge elections as a legitimizing tool. They held elections. They weren't competitive, but they held, in most, in most countries, they weren't competitive. Um, media saturated, and this is a mediation of power. Clearly, the media operated in that way. It's obviously gone much, much further now. That's a, a, a crucial difference between them and and uh, the current systems. Um, police states, um, I don't think there's a current one police state, I don't think Russia is a police state now, um, but many people would have argued that, uh, that the communist regime was much more of a police state than the existing one is. I think that argument is well included, but let's just agree that the police play a major role in the systems. And rule through law, law meant nothing within these uh, the communist countries except as an instrument to be used by the regime in order to keep populists in line. So, so in a sense, I think that what we've got here is a lot of, is a lot of, of reflection from the past, not of the, the need for a sense of history. And I think this sense of history clearly shows us that what we have are regimes which have very many characteristics that are similar to and, and, and I don't mind the term authoritarian, but two authoritarian regimes in the past, in particular, uh, the communist, uh, the communist one. I mean, one could also point, for example, to Indonesia as a challenge, possessing a lot of these, uh, these characteristics, or Ghana under Ochoa. So, I'm not sure that they're, that they're as new as, uh, as John suggests. Keeping on the, the communist theme, um, and moving to, to Pippa's paper, it was interesting that, that you said that there were two, two key characteristics of populism 
and the establishment and popular sovereignty. And of course, if you think about the positions that communist parties not in power occupy, they occupy those. Um, whether they whether they would then be called populist or not, I'm not I'm not sure. But what the, what that leads to is this question of whether we should actually see the communist regimes as authoritarian populists, because in many ways they are characterised by the same sorts of things that, that you're talking about when you talk about authoritarian populism. I want to move quickly on to the values argument. Crucially to this argument is that there was this, uh, this silent revolution, post-material values, social liberal values, uh, toward a tipping point. I'm not sure that that actually applies in Eastern Europe, that, that you have that sort of progression in Eastern Europe. And yet it's in Eastern Europe that we see some of these populist regimes at work. So it may be that the explanation needs to have some more nuancing or finessing around and finally, if we accept the argument, do we think it applies elsewhere as well? Because uh, if we're looking in, in, in Asia, we have a lot of these sorts of regimes as well. Um, so does the values argument apply there? And if it does, how does the values argument explain the situation where we get an oscillation between a democratic regime and a non-democratic regime and another democratic regime, and another non-democratic regime. And uh, Thailand is, I think, a case in point, and so is the Philippines. Okay, I'll leave it there, and I'll, I'll come up open to questions, and uh, please uh, do your, do your questions, uh, Mr. description of the regimes, uh, John, and particularly on the line of characteristics. I see all those line of characteristics present in the, in the Tudor government, in the Henry and Elizabeth, and then the Stuart governments under Charles I and Charles II, and Charles II sent assassins across Europe and into Massachusetts, uh, just the way Putin's, you know, something that's been overseas now. I think the glorious revolution the American Revolutionary War or reactions against uh, the powerful people in those groups uh, doing what they did, and other people were later able to join the institutions of Parliament and Congress, because those were not democratic institutions in the beginning. Uh, and I just think it's human nature, I mean, we're very lucky to have democracy, because it's contrary to human nature, and we have to fight for it, but it happened serendipitously in England and the United States. It's human nature, why, why fight against it? I mean, why fight democracy? Because it makes sense. As for Tudors, um, I, do, I do think, as well, the truth in what you say is very remark, um, is that there is um, a spreading and deepening sense for which we have uh, quite a lot of empirical evidence of a malaise that's settling on actually existing so-called democracies, that the voices don't count, that there's a drift towards some form of plutocracy, um, there's lawlessness, and so on. And, and, and how to 
for me, it's kind of makes sense that I think this um, is a more critical. I, I'm not sure that it's helpful because we use the tubers for this. I mean, shopping balls were, I think, invented until the late 19th century. I mean, digital networks and different things that have to stand. I mean, I, I'm trying to say that actually there's something very cutting edge 21st century is about the genes that I'm trying to summarize in uh, a few words. Perhaps something to say to Graham. Um, but uh, may I just briefly, I, I, I mean, I think you are right um, that, um, that all the roots of um, this form of power that I'm calling despotism, you're right about its great importance, no doubt about it. Um, and that, I'm right that the geopolitical center of gravity of these polities is Eurasia. Because, you know, there are a lot of historical roots in this. But I would, I would say that you rather overdo your um, Soviet Union um, touchstone because um, there weren't shopping malls in the Soviet Union. Um, the, there was a much stronger sense of a single ideology. The <coughs> class was different. The communications revolution hadn't started, digital networks and all that. And above all, there were no markets. I mean, you know, so, but, but the, the regimes that I'm describing have all those qualities, and I would say it's another reason for not um, overdoing the Soviet um, past and the nothing, the nothing new in all this. And then I think in the words that it's, 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 the, the, it's the coming to global ascendancy of China. And I mean, all of the qualities <coughs> I was describing, you can find as basic um, structural characteristics of China in the 21st century, and what is new, uh, surely, um, is um, its uh, empire status. I wrote with a colleague, Harry Brown, who was once with us here as head of the China Study Center, a meeting last weekend, South China Morning Post, and I want to read that. It basically makes the argument that one of the big things going on is the birth of two empires that are entangled. And this is different than the Soviet uh, period where the entanglement much less, and where um, democracies uh, that are suffering all sorts of dysfunctions of the kind that you have been analyzing are entangled um, in a rising power that has a great durability about it, and we're going to have to figure out ways of coming to terms. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, I, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm curious actually to hear from both John and Pip in um, how you feel the phenomenon of Cambridge Analytica falls into this, um, yeah, situation, concept. Exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for folks because you had a theory to explain the Occupy Wall Street movement. So, as I said, there are two forms of populism, and the group is basically authoritarian or libertarian. So the libertarian is out there, and again, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, that was the, the idea, and it's very strong for the Democratic Party right now, and Elizabeth Warren. And so they do want a more egalitarian future, they do see the corporate elites as just as bad as the political elites, and they want to have greater, greater equality, and basic rights for minorities, and racial justice, and gender justice, and so on. So that side is there, along with the populist claims that everybody else is corrupt, etc. 
And, and that's like, is there in Europe when you think about Podemos in Spain, when you think about uh, the Christ Sun movement in Italy? So well, populism is not always anti rights of women or rights of minorities. It can be more sympathetic. Trouble is, most of the parties are with the authoritarian side versus the libertarian side, and most of the successful ones are because those two things get together very much. So it is a phenomenon which is important, and it's on the side of reform uh, and progressivism, if you like. Uh, but most of the parties that I get to write back to forwards that actually at all, they combine the strong leadership and the repression of human rights with the kind of language of populism. Can you It's a very, uh, very important question. And, and um, in addition, I would say that uh, if it's the case that um, so-called democracies have drifted in the direction, in the directions I was describing, um, towards something that you know could be called despotism. It's a term that's out of fashion, but it was a very big term um, in the early modern political thought. Montesquieu um, is uh, one of the critical figures. To describe a type of power uh, of great, where there are great inequalities, but a type of power that um, produces voluntary servitude of its subjects, subjects are loyal to it. Um, if there's any um, evidence for that, if there's any um, uh, wind in the sails of that argument, then you would expect, as I think you can see happening in all kinds of contexts, um, resistance. Uh, we have a distinguished scholar in the audience, Henry Bang, who writes about everyday making. I mean, the politics of resistance in everyday life to this kind of despotic power um, has become chronic. Whether, whether it can effect um, deeper changes and defend democracy is an open question. It may be that it feeds into authoritarian populism. That's an open question for Tinkwestella, I think. Um, but in any case, um, these um, localized forms of resistance, detournement was the French term in the 60s, um, are becoming chronic. A little case in point, I don't know if you're following the events, which are for me a kind of metaphor of our time in Oakland, California. So the mayor, um, before ICE comes in for a raid, where they're looking to, um, to round up 8,000 illegals, the mayor, a day or so before, warns the Latino and other communities that um, there's going to be an ICE raid. Um, ICE comes in, kicking down doors and so on, terrifying people. They arrested 270 people. Um, others fled or went underground. And the Justice Department, the Justice Department, um, the Federal Justice Department, announces that it's going to look into legal proceedings against the mayor. Why not just shut down democracy? Why not just have uh, a despotism? Well, on the ground, um, Oakland uh, uh, citizens are actually forming themselves into a network to protest this. You know, that's the kind of political dynamic that I think is, is, uh, is a feature of our times. Um, a few years ago, Sherry Blair, privately in the office of the Republic of Power, referred to the modern state as post-democratic. Um, have we reached the apotheosis of democracy, is there 
basically the role is to change the institutions. So you have elections, but they're manipulated. You have courts, but they're partisan. So a lot of our systemic explanations in the social sciences in, in those who have talked, talked about democratization for so many years. And now we've really got to stand on our heads and talk about the opposite. And I don't think we have much to appeal between ourselves about what's going on. Um, so it's quite a challenge. It means all our social scientists can really get new grants, hopefully, but also <laughs> But they can't. Um, yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask on the idea of uh, electoral manipulation. Um, <coughs> obviously, here in Australia, it could be probably where we do have compulsory voting, and, um, and obviously the states and the UK don't. Um, I think it's important uh, that Western democracy is acting as a bulwark against the rise of these authoritarian regimes in the East. Uh, it's more important that we. Uh, have robust and thriving, true democratic uh, uh, governments and institutions. Um, so I just wanted to ask both John and Pippa, and I suspect they might have different opinions about this, uh, about the value of introducing compulsory voting into the US and the UK, because the USA obviously has a electoral college system which distorts things that we know, because it's a really unpopular vote. But we've become aware, obviously, with the, uh, the uh, efforts of Cambridge, I believe, that they one of the things they were trying to do was not the famous get out the vote in America, but to stop the vote, particularly in Hillary's case, which they seem to do quite successfully. Um, and in the UK, obviously, Brexit, uh, the uh, people up north who are much more disaffected, people down south, uh, came out and voted in much larger numbers. Uh, and obviously, with compulsory voting, uh, that might have been affected. And also, there might have been Cambridge Analytics trying to convince the younger generations that uh, it was all going to be pro, uh, sorry, anti-Brexit vote and they didn't need to bother to turn up. So I was just wondering if you wanted to comment on the idea and also what resistance there would be to introducing compulsory voting into the US and into the UK, which you're more familiar with. Right. Um, so the first thing is, obviously, participation is critical, and who turns out at the ballot box? And as we saw with Brexit, young people whose futures were on the line, sit in bed, and the older generation who always votes turned out to vote. And that made a difference in the first result, remember it's 48-52. If only young people had been mobilized, then it might have made their values come to representation. So there's a representation gap. Is the compulsory voting the answer in America? Can you imagine? I mean, basically, legal <laughs> carry and having people with guns in my lecture is now normal. Um, I do not think, I mean, that, that part actually in 1998 that we should have compulsory voting in America, went down and left the room. But there are other things which are going on, particularly critical issues, one in which the Democrats have taken up very successfully, and that's gerrymandering. And the courts have taken this up, and now the extremes of partisan gerrymandering in Pennsylvania are really being cut back by the courts. So that's going to make a much fairer level playing field, not totally level, but nevertheless it will be. And then there are some other ways that people are mobilized. And basically, everybody is excited. Everybody now wants to vote because they're so angry. Um, and so in that sense, uh, there's going to be higher turnout in the next election in 2018, November, than there has been in the past. But still, there are going to be gaps. And if you look, for example, at the African-American vote or the Hispanic vote, um, it's still not going to be as high as it could be. And again, if young people could vote, that would be brilliant. But they're very good at protesting, they're very good at consumer polls, they're very good at social movements, they're very good at tweeting. Um, if we could vote by, vote by tweet, that would be a different situation, but we can't. Uh, but compulsory voting won't work, I'm afraid, in the United States. Uh, in, the, in the US, 
confession out there, that is um, 16 year olds. That's been the big debate. But of course, if you bring 16 year, 16 year olds to vote, your turnout will go down, not up in the short term. In the UK, 16-year-olds are being given the vote. Why then more likely than any year olds to get out of bed? Well, the idea, I, I, I don't support it, right? The idea is you get a habit when you vote early. And so if you get engaged in politics, uh, then you're going to have a habit that will last your, your lifetime. So also, if you think about it, think about the shootings which have been going on in schools. Young people are really protesting in America, and they're just not being heard. So there is an argument that 18 is arbitrary. After all, it used to be 21. Why 18? 16 year olds have rights, which should be trampled upon. They're really scared to go to school. Maybe they should have a voice as well. That's the argument which is being made. Um, again, very interesting questions. Uh, uh, three very quick things to say. First of all, I, I looked in detail at the legislation that was passed to introduce compulsory voting here in the 20s. And what's really striking is there's no debate at all in the Parliament. You know, there's no great constitution maker speeches about the importance of Rousseau and these. Um, it was introduced as the final stage in um, the full mechanization of the electoral system. So if you could take the uncertainty of who would show up, you could have a perfectly functioning machine like that. I haven't seen it in an engineering way. It has come, of course, like all democratic innovations that have. Um, a new significance, and it's interesting in this country, uh, and there are a few others which have compulsory voting in those who are uh, There are places like Greece where this is defied, compulsory voting is terrible. Um, but um, in this country, note that those who are championing the dismantling of compulsory voting um, are those who would like a shift of wealth in their favor, uh, because the presumption is that um, you know the, the precarious and those lazy, you know, semi-employed, settling people will vote Labour if at all. So the way to ensure forever uh, a liberal coalition government is to abolish it. And I hope it doesn't happen and should be existed. Um, you asked whether we agree about these things. I, I'm all in favour of free and fair elections. Electoral integrity is fundamental for democracy. Um, nothing less than But in my own work, in recent years, and in the life and death of democracy, I've made the case of being a democracy has nothing less than free and fair, but something much more. There's something much more what is at stake in this authoritarian, namely um, the need for counterbalancing, checking and balancing, public monitoring and scrutiny of power, courts, integrity bodies, um, institutions like networks like Syria Observatory. Um, a democracy requires the unelected mechanisms um, in order to prevent the abuse of power and all the evil that comes from the abuse of power. And third, uh, in the very last, in a curious way, um, these new despotisms um, understand the problem of uh, compulsory voting and they do everything they can to try to get the vote out. Because what they don't want um, is a very low turnout, you know, 20%, where the Putin figure you know, has to explain why there's only one fifth of adult Russian voting. And the hence, as you saw in the, uh, the recent elections, um, dirty tricks like carousel voting, multiple voting, um, several uh, uh, polls, or using the schools to get the vote out. So 
Um, in your little car, make sure that kids are going to be on election day in the school. That means the parents have to come to pick them up. Um, that means that the head can send a letter to the parents saying, um, we expect you to come to vote. And you do, because the code is the code is a code word saying you must vote for them. Um, so they, 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 they are kind of, you know, there are regimes that worry about um, low turnouts. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm just curious about the, what, what Professor Jonathan has talked about, the middle class in the Eurasia region, they seem, seemly they do not support the so-called power sharing politics. And I was curious about, because uh, uh, recently I, read, uh, I have read an article which is uh, written by an associate professor who uh, works, uh, works at the, the Southern California University, and he, con uh, he conducted such an experiment about analyzing the uh, middle class uh, in, a, in a Russia. And they said that most of the middle class in this country, in countries like Russia, they were actually employed by the state sector, the state-owned enterprises and other things like that. So my personal I come from China, and you know, the, during the opening and reform policies, they, there were so many, com uh, so many companies was transformed from the state-owned to a private-owned, or somehow like a mixed ownership, which is what we call the hood And just like, what do you think about this? The, uh, is that kind of the way, uh, the wealth, uh, the origin of the wealth of this middle class uh, has some limitations to restrict their actions now, uh, supporting this democracy? Well, uh, no doubt has something to say about this as well. I, I have some orthodox views about this. Um, we do, um, in the case of China, we, we do have um, data um, that is um, uh, probably methodologically uh, very sophisticated. A few uh, have done uh, this in China, which shows up a, a, an interesting pattern. For those who identify as middle class, that number is at least 250 million, it might be 300, it might be 400, and she's planned by 2030 is to make it even bigger than that. It's a pretty big middle class. Um, if you ask them, are you in favor of free and fair elections? It's like 80% say no. Why would we ever want elections of that kind that goes on in the United States to elect that idiot? <laughs> um, but if you ask them, are you, um, are you, uh, what, which, which values do you hold to politically, or more accurately, um, are you in favor of more intervention, you know, uh, into family life and more legal regulation? They say no, in the same numbers. So it's, it, it's, um, and, and as far as crime in China is concerned, you know, it's higher. So. Um, as probably in the Russian case, but for different reasons, um, this middle class um, shows limited signs of wanting power sharing constitutional multi-party democracy with free and fair elections. This, I think, um, at the moment is, um, is the trend which is very consistent. Why this is the case, um, I mean, it's very complicated, but um, here's a thought, just one thought, to uh, sleep on tonight, and it's um, Hugo Balgang's thought that he's a, one of the 
of our best finance scholars, who is in Melbourne, who says that if it's the case that um, this new Chinese polity, um, as they, they pass, is becoming a global empire, then um, the middle class of China um, will do well out of this um, imperial spread. Uh, and here he draws um, a parallel with the Werner Zombach argument, why he asked at the uh, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, why is there no socialism in the United States? And the answer was that actually the middle class and part of the working class did well out of a rising empire. And so you know, it may be that, that we have to swallow that pill uh, and not expect um, uh, springing into action the shortest sentence, I think, in the history of the modern social sciences by Harrington Moore Jr. No bourgeois, no democracy. You've got, to have, you've got to have a middle class before you can have democracy, and they, they are prone, the middle class is prone to argue for that shared history. I think the case of China, Russia, I would say during the Central Asian republics, I would say um, the Gulf states, um, Belarus, Vietnam shows that that ain't the case. So we'll end with a little bit of disagreement on that point. We can totally agree on the free and fair and all of that. Most of my arguments are that education is mattering, generation is mattering, absolutely. Sex and gender is mattering, class is just not. Again, evidence I looked at. The idea that there are socioeconomic groups which are voting on attitudes is really, I think, a product of the past. And most of the evidence I find, when you ask people about, for example, support for democracy in the World Bank Survey, in many, many countries, it's not a class which to see. Those who are educated are those who are poor. Are those who are not being more liberal in nearly every country that you've got. The younger people are. The parents, the grandparents are much more traditional. So class is what's going on. John started with lots of D's, decay, dissolution, and institution. Maybe what we should think of is the three C's, not D's. Um, in other words, what's going on these doctors? Why is it that they support? It can be coercion. That's often what we assume. The iron fist in the velvet glove, the way in which the political can come out, and the oppression of opposition groups and the parties. And obviously that's still going on. Think about Egypt, think about the changes during their revolution. And indeed the role of the tax in Turkey, the early ground putting down their revolution. Or it can be corruption, clientelism, backsheesh and all of that, and that's clearly important, particularly in those countries with resources, particularly with natural resources, but not in some of the poorest countries in the world. And then the last one is culture. And I think that the cultural one is the one that we have the got to grips with. And I don't think it's about asking people, do you, do you want democracy or not, or where do you want it on a different scale? It really is about asking them about their underlying values, which are much deeper. They might not have very clear views about what democracy is, for all sorts of good reasons, not they don't, or human rights, or a whole range of abstract notions. But if you ask them, do you want to have a strong leader to protect you against outside threats? That, I think, is where the rubber hits the road. And we need to, therefore, think about the balance between those three aspects in what's creating the
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.